Hey folks, it's me, Victoria Stapleton. It's a wonderful day in the early fall, somewhere in the digital universe. The leaves are changing color. The light is slanted just a little bit extra. The breeze is coming in through the, the screened-in window with a very strange, fluffy squirrel peering at me because the squirrel knows that the next voice you're going to hear is that of the man, the myth, the legend, Barry Liga. Hello. God, I was really hoping with the run up to that I would have something more, but you are like the world's greatest troll. It's, it's minimalism. I'm all about the minimalism. <laughs> I find that amusing, um, both given the length of my books, <laughs> given the length of your books, but also uh, the Baroque quality of the plots of your books. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it, it's minimalism in life, not in uh, not not in in art. Says the man coming to me from a mint green study. That yes, is amusing. Uh, try it. Try again, buddy. Um, so clearly Barry and I have known each other a while. Barry Liga is the noted author of a number of excessively fine YA novels, beginning with a little shindig called Boy Toy. No? The Astonishing Adventures of Fanboy and Goth Girl was the first book. Oh, that's right. But see, the first one I liked was Boy Toy. Oh, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't hurt at all. Oh. Don't worry. That doesn't hurt at all. Not at all. Not even a little bit. Not even. Not even a little tiny bit. Not even a little tiny bit. Mission unaccomplished. <laughs> unaccomplished. The Amazing Adventures and Boy Toy were published by Another House, and then yes. you know Barry and I met each other, and we enjoyed uh, spending time in each other's company in a completely HR appropriate manner. Or not completely, because I don't think HR appreciates that much time spent in adult bars and that much uh, swearing when we talk to each other. This is true. This this is absolutely true. There are adult libations consumed, and there is, uh, as they say on Ted Lasso, fruity language. Yes. <laughs> fruity language. Um, yes. But then, Barry, through the, the process of this, uh, we invited Alvina Ling into our relationship. Uh, and <laughs> and we became a thruple. We became a thruple uh, through the power of a wonderful anthology called Geek-tastic that was edited by Holly Black and Cecil Castellucci. And it, it is a little bit of a cast of a thousand all-stars there. Your story was a standout. And from there, one of the best publishing experiences of my life I hunt killers. Can you do the I hunt killers well, voice still? Oh God, I haven't done that voice in a long, long, long time. Uh, the the Billy Dent voice. Wow. Let, uh, I, I will try it for you, for your podcast audience. I will see if I can do it. Who? Okay. Let's see. Sometimes I find me a pretty little girly, and I take her aside, and eventually she stops moving stop screaming and i realized if she stopped moving then she was moving and if she ain't alive no more she was alive and i think that's good i got me a real one this time 
Eh, that wasn't my best Billy Dent, but, uh, you know, I, I'm very out of practice. I used to do that voice all the time. I would do it randomly around the house and it would freak my wife out, but it, it, it's been a while. I, I used to have a recording of that voice. <laughs> did, I, did I do that? Did I, like, leave you a voicemail with that? No. No? Okay. <laughs> You're not the only one in this literary relationship that has untoward practices. <laughs> This is true. This is true. No, yeah, it's funny you, you describe Geektastic as standout, my Geektastic story. That that story was, um, I, I felt like when that anthology came out, I heard what I saw in reviews and online and everything was people saying, oh, I loved every story in this anthology except for Barry Ligas. Uh, because my story was horrible. And I don't mean horrible, like, qualitatively. It was just a really dark horrible story and i think people were not looking for that in their happy shiny we're all geeks we love things uh anthology and so i got a lot of uh, a, a lot of hate um over that story but holly and cecil liked it so i was like score i win i loved it and i you know the happy shiny geek thing was not something to which <laughs> i responded i mean one of my favorites is still geek love Catherine dunn and the whole dark side of those, I mean, the joy comes from the pain. Yeah. As, as most sensible folks, including Billy Dent, could tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's other people's pain, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's always the best. So I had Killers turned into a trilogy, and that was really great. And you've done several other books since then, not always with us, uh, but with some other people. Another one I really liked was Bang. Finally got yeah. a cover right on that one. I did not like the hardcover of that one. But I have to say, you're back now with a new book with LBYR, and I love the cover of this book. Yeah, it is really cool. And this book's name is Time Will Tell. There is an aspect of this book that I absolutely hate and reject. And okay. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to know that anybody knows about it, but I guess we're going to talk about it, so some people will know about it. The kickoff experience of this book is a time capsule that was buried by some teenagers in the year 1986. Way back in the halcyon days of 1986. The last year I was a functional teenager. So this is now I am my parents and I am not ready. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. It's terrible. It's, it's, it's awful. Like as I was... As I was writing the scenes set in the present, because uh, the book goes back and forth between the present and, and 1986, as I was writing the scenes set in the present, I realized that that I was the, the parents in, in the book, uh, oh. with, which is okay, because I, I actually am a parent, but my children are, are very young and very small, and the idea of being parents to teenagers, um, the, the idea that I'm old enough that I could be parents to teenagers really just sort of uh, messed with my head a little bit. I, I never really thought, you know, my mother was obsessed with her age, and I never really thought I would get obsessed with my age. Yeah. Which is, you know, my mid-50s. But then I read this, and it was like, <laughs> 1986? Couldn't he have made it 1985 or 1987? Does it have to be 1986? Does it have to be yeah. that one? You know, it, it's funny, too, because, you know, the, the thing that gets me, I was looking at one of the, I can't remember where it was. It might have been on Amazon where there's these breakdowns of like categories for the books. And, uh, and this book is categorized as like historical fiction. <laughs> and, I'm, 
And I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I remember 1986. <laughs> that can't be historical. But no. it is. Apparently it is. Exactly. 1986 was a very long time ago. I, I don't know that I exactly remember 1986, but that would be for other yeah. reasons. And that is a not, that's a different podcast, as they say. As I said, the motivating event occurs in 1986. Flash forward to our very day, and there are four characters, teens, Georgia, Marcy, Liam, and... Aliyah. Thank you, because I yes. said it differently in my head. These teens discover the time capsule, and they discover something inside the time capsule, which gives them pause and chills and conundrums and a big case of the, oh, uh-oh. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, uh, being a little bit coy, I mean, they, they empty the time capsule, and... There's all kinds of 80s goodness in there. That was a lot of fun to come up with what would be in there. But then there's also evidence of a murder. And it's like they know their parents buried the time capsule. <laughs> and there's evidence of a murder in there. So what did their parents do and to whom and why and how and when? And now they have to figure that out. And at the same time, they're not sure they can really trust their parents anymore. And, you know, really, what are the consequences of the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think that, uh, I think that one of the things that, that's going on here is, you know, that there's that moment when you realize that you're, you're transitioning from child to adult mm -hmm. and, and you begin to realize there are certain responsibilities you have to take on. And there, it's a cliche to say it, but I think it's true. Like there's that moment that every child has that comes at a certain time when you realize your parents aren't perfect. Right. Yeah. Um, and and but I feel like there's also that moment when you realize that your parents have secrets like there's there's realizing that they're not perfect. But then there's also realizing that they are fully formed, fully fleshed human beings like you. And they have things that they're ashamed of or things they don't want to talk about or things they don't want people to know. And and you begin to realize that and it makes you feel icky because you also have things you don't want to talk about, things you're ashamed of, and you know how that makes you feel. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, your parents feel that way, too. Yes, your parents are people. Uh, funnily enough, 1986, a banner year for me. <laughs> the year I discovered my mother had a lot of secrets. Right. <laughs> And I'm like, okay yeah. then. But, I mean, this book does give a whole new meaning to the phrase, the blood will out. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I I was interested by the idea of, like, sort of this intergenerational. There, there are a lot of, you know, generational sagas. Like, that's mm -hmm. why we have a term for it, generational sagas. Uh, and I was interested in the idea of, you know, uh, a, a generational saga involving a mystery and involving a murder and involving this sort of pain, but also at the same time exploring what happens around those things, what happens around the pain and around the mystery. Um, and especially because I'm, you know, I'm old enough now and I've seen enough time pass that, that I can see how the world has changed and how the world has bettered, but also how much further we still have to go. And so I, I felt like I had a perspective on that. And the way to show that perspective was to juxtapose these two very different eras and show how very different they are, but also how they're, they're still somewhat the same. 
Uh, you were mentioning the transitional phase between childhood and adulthood, that weird, strange space teendom is, and I have a whole theory about psychology with it. We won't go into that today. This is your podcast, not mine. Um, but in a lot of your books, as I was reading through, noticing that the adults tend to thrust teen characters into adult situations early. I don't want to exactly say parentification. Um, I know that's a thing. I'm very familiar with it. But it, it's more that uh, adults require the teens to deal with the consequences, to deal with the cleanup. Do you think this sort of, I don't want to say, I don't know, it's like a thing you keep coming back to. Is this a commentary on the nature of parenthood, or is this something, I don't know, I'm not really phrasing this correctly. I mean, I hope it's not a commentary on the nature of parenthood. I hope it's a commentary on the nature of some parents. Um, you know, because I, I, I hope that when my children are that age, I'm not, you know, thrusting them into these, into adult situations before they're ready for them. But I think, you know, I, I always felt like I, I had to grow up very quickly. Um, you know, child and divorce, it's a very typical thing. Um, and so I, I think when I think of those years, I think of, you know, I mean, you know, we, we write from our own experiences as much as we can, and we try to project those experiences onto characters that are not us in an interesting way, but it's still from our experiences. And so I, I, I think, you know, when I think back to, to those teen years, it's just very easy for me to slip into this whole, you know, this whole liminal space of, well, you know, I, I can't vote or drink yet. But I still have all these responsibilities, whether they've been imposed on me or whether I imposed them on myself because I saw that, you know, somebody else wasn't meeting those responsibilities and I felt like I had to. And so I think that that that's just a natural thing for me. And also, I think it's because, you know, I'm less interested. I want to be careful how I say this because it, it could sound insulting and I, I don't mean it that way. Yeah. I am less interested in exploring, oh boy, in exploring the sort of uh, archetypal teen experiences, mm -hmm. um, you know, falling in love for the first time, uh, first breakup, um, you know, all, all, all you know, th those sorts of things. I'm, I'm less interested in that, and I'm more interested in what happens when you take these characters and you put them under pressure that they are not equipped to handle. Uh, because that's when you find out what they're made of. And so whether it's Ion Killers, where you have a 17-year-old whose father is a serial killer, which I certainly never had to deal with, but you know what, what happens to him when you put him in that vice uh, between, between morality and, and action and, and, and start to tighten the, the, the vice? Um, you know, in Time Will Tell, what happens when you realize, oh, crap, like my parents might not be the people I thought they were. What am I going to do about that? Um, I can't go to them for help like I would normally because they are the problem. And I feel, and, and that's sort of, you know, where I, where, where I fall on that. That, that. That's what I find most interesting. I think of all of these as sort of a more intimate version of a quandary a lot of kids are, are finding themselves in now, particularly now. You mentioned the intergenerational quality of your work. The, the present is constructed by the past. It is a yeah. function of past choices. 
And we look now at w the world teens are encountering with the moral quandaries it's encountering. Is that Black Lives Matter? Is that looking at the current discussions about um, the place of queer people in our schools and in our culture? I mean, we just see uh, a high school in Texas, I think last week, where there was a mass walkout because uh, a queer teacher had been escorted off the grounds a couple days before. Um, yeah. Then looking at the issues of um, economic inequality, uh, there's so many, you, or gun violence, issue after issue after issue, that teens find themselves having to confront and navigate morally, none of which they created, none of those situations they created, they're created by the adults around them in their lives. So I think about your fiction and the, and the pressure cooker moralities that the parents impose on those kids is just a more intimate version of those quandaries a lot of teens face today. Do you think that's a fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th I think that, I think a few things have happened since the time that, that I was the age of the kids in this book. Um, obviously, the, the internet and in particular social media have made mm -hmm. it easier for them to be aware of these issues and to be aware that it's not just something they're experiencing. You know, when I was a kid and, and I was being bullied, for example, um, it felt very singular. It felt very personal. It felt like this was something that just happened to me. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, there's a million, you know, there, there's Reddit subreddits to talk about it. There's websites to talk about it. There's social media about it. And so it doesn't change the fact that you're getting bullied. But you realize, oh, it's a systemic issue. It's endemic. You know, it can become a cause as opposed to just something where you sort of turtle up and hope that it goes away. Um, so there, there, that's the one thing that there's this awareness. And then, of course, there's the projective issue where now, you know, you look at what the teens from Parkland have done, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, before they could even vote, they were out there blasting out on social media taking on the NRA, trying to organize people for marches, trying to organize people to vote because they could. I don't think necessarily that today's teenagers are any more invested than we were when I was a kid, but we didn't have the capacity. I mean, I grew up in a little town in the middle of nowhere. I had no capacity to do anything because there were maybe two other people in town who agreed with me and understood and were willing to do something. But now... If there's only two other people in your town, it doesn't matter because there are millions of people around the world and you can communicate with them. And so I think that th this becomes a, a this becomes something that feeds on itself. The more you're able to get out there and discuss these things and learn about them, the more you begin to care about them. And so the more you do something about it, and then the more you care about it, and, and it just keeps going. And I think that's why that's why teenagers today seem like they're so much more invested in these issues. And so much more responsive to these issues, mm -hmm. which is a is a good thing, but also a horrible thing. Because again, this is a case of us as adults imposing this on kids. I'm I'm really sick of hearing adults say to, I'll say this word, children, saying to them, "Hey, you are the you're the hope of the future. You're going to fix everything." It's like, well, that's not right. Like that's not cool. If 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 there's a Lego tower in my house and I knock it over, it's not right for me to go to my kid and say, Hey, you can build that Lego tower back. Like, no, I knocked it over. I'm the a-hole, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it should be my job to fix it. And one thing that I like to talk about, like whenever, you know, 
<laughs> in the before times when I went to schools and talked to actual, actual living, breathing teenagers, one thing I always talked about, and some schools appreciated it and some did not, was that not to let parents or other adults convince them there was something wrong with them or their generation. Because the world is in the shape it is in because of me and my parents and my grandparents. And we're, you know, th these kids didn't vote for Ronald Reagan. They didn't vote for George Bush. They didn't vote for Donald Trump. Not, none of them were old enough to do any of that. None of this is their fault. And yet we dump it on them to fix it because the children are our future. I mean, that's just not, <laughs> it's just not right. It's, it's not right to burn the house down and then say, well, you're young and strong. You can rebuild it. Well, that bothers me. Yeah. You know, you, I, I really appreciate this point because again, it goes back to that adultification. Yeah. Thing. Um, I also experienced the same sort of, I don't say disquiet when I look at a lot of adult literature because it seems very colonized by adult concerns and it doesn't seem to be very much about teens. I could give a couple examples, but I'm not gonna. But then in the wider culture, looking at somebody like Greta Thunberg, everybody, there's a lot of people who find her to be terrifically inspirational, but why is she made to bear the right, burden right. of that? There's no, I mean, there's no reason. I mean, yes, she's great. And, and, and that does not, her, the fact that she's great does not obviate the fact that she should not be doing any of this. Yeah. It's not her job. It's not Like, her it's job. ridiculous ridiculous that we are relying on teenagers to figure this stuff out that we you know that it took david hogg and and other kids from parkland pointing themselves at the nra to to get attention paid there mm -hmm. it it's ridiculous it, it is an absolute abdication of of adulthood and responsibility on the part of people in power and you know everybody in power is an adult yeah well, that speaks to the larger issue of exploitation. I guess I'll bring that back to how you approach your writing. Because there's that power dynamic issues, and a lot of your books deal with power dynamics. Mm -hmm. And you write really, one of my favorite words, but I think it, it is very apt to your books, pungent. You write very pointed, pungent YA books. And you're not shy about treating these power dynamics and these other grittier topics, whether that is um, about sexual exploitation or whether that is about murder or whether that is about uh, uh, imbalance in interpersonal relationships. Why has is it that you have been, I mean, as you say, it's not about first love and it's not about breaking up. Why is it about, what is it about this area that you really lean into this in your approach? How do you really balance the honesty of these stories with the logic of it. I mean, you, you're not always going for a happy ending about it. And, but how do you do that without being exploitive? You know, thinking about that power dynamic and adultifying teens, how do you avoid exploitation in the reader, of the reader? I begin by, I really feel that it is up to the audience to decide if I've been exploitative or not. Mm -hmm. And different people will feel differently about it. And that's fine. Uh, that's, that's, you know, why, why we do it. I, I've never, I was going to say that I've never liked, uh, stories that, that have easy premises, but it's not true. I, I've liked many stories that have easy premises. I've just never found them attractive from the perspective of craft. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I enjoy wrestling with these things and trying to figure them out for myself. And I also, I feel like, you know, I, I have read and written a broad range of, of things, but the, the stories I keep coming back to and the ones that I find most interesting and most compelling are, are the difficult ones, are the really, the, the ones that, that resist easy interpretation, the ones that are, are difficult to get through sometimes, the ones that at the end leave you not going, yay, but going, huh. <laughs> and, and that leave you thinking about it. You know, there, there are stories I read as a kid that I still think about now because they, that's how they left me. And I know some people get frustrated by that. Some people want an ending. They want a definitive ending. And I absolutely 100% respect that. And if that's the case, you probably will not like 85 to 90% of what I write. And that's fine. Um, but I know, I look at it, you know, a book that I read in, in 1988 that I still occasionally think about it and ponder. I don't look at that as, oh, that writer took me up on a cliff and has been dangling me there ever since. I look at it, it's a gift. That writer gave me something to think about for my, for my life. That writer gave me something that, that I can return to and ponder um, you know, for, for as long as I live. And I think that's amazing. And, and if I can do that for somebody else and take up a little teeny tiny corner of a neuron in their brain for, for decades and, and give them that, that, that pleasure of returning to it occasionally over the years, that's amazing. That's wonderful. Well, first of all, what is that 1988 book? <laughs> um, uh, I just picked 1988 out of nowhere, but uh, you know so some of the books um, certainly replay by Ken Grimwood. Mm. I think about all the time. All the, I'm obsessed with that book, and I first read that uh, probably a year or so after. I was probably too young, but I read it uh, when that shortly after it came out. Um, and then, uh, uh, strangely enough, I, I think about uh, Zeus for Zachariah a lot. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I think I hit that book right at the right time and it just really stuck in my head and I think about it quite a bit. And, and, but another example isn't, isn't a book, but uh, Twin Peaks, the, the TV show from, from the eighties and nineties is probably one of the biggest influences on me as a writer that I can think of. Um, and you know, I spent 25 years wondering how's Annie, how's Annie, um, and was not frustrated at all. I was like, no, this is, this is great. I have this to think about for a very long time now. And then of course they, they did the third season, which was mind blowing and awesome and, st- and gave me even more things to think about. Well, first of all, Ray wise, you can never go wrong in any project. Uh, oh, Ray yeah. wise I, I really enjoy that answer. I mean, I hate, I don't typically like to pull out the Lord of the Rings thing because honestly, Oh, sure. But there's a passage in there talking about, it's just one big giant story. And you only see part of it. And one of the things I enjoy about your books is there is a sense that whether it's in your mind or not, you're aware that there is a story surrounding what the narrative that's going on in the page. Yeah. So those 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 four kids dig up that time capsule, but they have all sorts of relationships that go into making of them that are not referenced on the page, but they're somehow present. And there's some, the way that you've drawn the characters and you've drawn the relationships, even in those passing moments, I can imagine Georgia walking down the halls of school and just the different echoes of what's going to happen to her during the day. And, but then thinking about, okay, 
you close the book and you read the last sentence, you close the cover, thinking about those characters, where are they going to go on from that? So yeah. I think how you draw the characters and think about the nitty, the, think about the story, it's not a neat ending, it's a stopping point, not... Right. Right. I, I always try to, and I think this comes from, from reading comic books my whole life, I always try to give a hint that there are more stories going on around the main story. Uh, it's funny, cause you brought up, brought up uh, Boy Toy before, and Boy Toy was a book where when I finished it, I realized that every major character in the book, I could sit down and write the exact same story, but from that character's point of view. Because I realized I had set them all up and given them all these full lives, these full, rich, internal lives. And, you know, the, the story is Josh dealing with the fact that he was molested by his teacher when he was 12, right? That, that is the story, him coming to terms with that. And I realized, oh, I could tell that same story from his mother's point of view as the mother of a boy dealing with this. I could tell it from his best friend's point of view. I could tell it from his girlfriend's point of view. I could tell it from the point of view of the woman who molested him. Like, I could tell this all of it from all these different stories from all these different points of view. And I think, um, you know, with, with time will tell the thing is that this book is broken up into so many points of view. There's something like, I think seven point of view characters mm -hmm. in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's seven. I, I can't remember. It, originally there was one more and I, I actually took one out because it was getting too crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, but there's so many different points of view and you've got, you know, I realized I was writing, I was writing a scene in 1986 where one of the parents, of the present is a kid talking to his dad and his dad is telling him something. And I realized, Oh, his dad has a story about when he was a kid. And so then I got to think about who his dad is back from like the fifties. And, and I realized, God, like if I don't stop myself, I'm going to go all the way back to like Plymouth rock and, you know, and have this whole, you know, it's going to be like a, a James Mishner book. Um, or a George R.R. R. Martin book. Or George R. R. Martin, yeah, um, and and so you know you, you have to rein it in, and and you have you know you, you have to find you, you have to find the things that that matter and, the, and focusing. And it's still a, a long, a very long, very dense book, um, but it's like it could have gone even longer. Yeah, but I think that speaks to the logic of the narrative is not imposed. It sort of is organic to those characters, and I know there's a lot of craft and interplay to that. But what I appreciate about your books are very four-dimensional. And Time Will Tell is no exception to that because there are all these additional layers to that. And I appreciate your point about whether a particular reader will find the story or the grittiness of it. Gritty, for lack of a better term. The pungency of the story. Um, whether they find that exploitative or not. I mean, thinking about your primary, your primary reader is teens. You're not writing for adults who read teen lit. You're writing for teens. I, I, I always say, though, I don't write for teens. I write about teens. <laughs> um, I, the, the, the trouble that I get in, and, and I realize this, and I'm just sort of powerless to do anything about it, um, is I, I, I'm writing for myself. Like it, uh, Every book is a quest to see, can I do this? Can I achieve this? Can I, can I make this work? Here's this idea. Can I sustain it over X number of pages? And by the time I get to the end, will I feel the way I think I should feel? Um, and, and, and that's why I have trouble with revision a lot of times is because <laughs> I get to the end and I'm like, I did it. 
And then the editor comes in and says, okay, now fix it. And I'm like, but you don't understand. I, I did it. <laughs> like, like I, I don't need to, I, I did it. I did exactly what I wanted to do. I'm, I'm done. And they're like, no, 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 you're not. Um, and, and that is the problem that I have with your vision. So, um, you know, I, I try to think of the audience as little as possible because I feel like I will be less honest if I'm overly concerned with what the audience will think. And I'm, I'm sure that that is an issue in many ways. But I'm, you know, I'm not an idiot. I'm aware that I write YA. I'm aware that it is marketed to teens and not adults. I'm aware that my primary market is teenagers. So, yeah, I mean, I, I know that. That's interesting. What did you want to feel having completed Time Will Tell? And did you feel that? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, the, the ending changed. So the, initially, I, I wanted to feel sad at the end. And I did when, when I did when I wrote it and, and ended it the way I originally intended it. And then um, my editor and I talked, and, um, and and the ending changed. And so that was that was different for me because I didn't have an expectation at that point mm-hmm. of what I wanted to feel like. But I, regardless, I I felt I also felt a sense of, of achievement because purely on a craft level, it's the most complicated thing that I've I'm going to say published. <laughs> because I have another book that's more complicated that has not been published yet, but um, it's like a thousand pages that book. Or did that yes, <laughs> it is. It is almost exactly a thousand pages. The mythical um, thousand page book. <laughs> although you know what, you know what though, I, I, I'm going to take that back. This is the most complicated thing I've written uh, from a craft perspective because that book, that crazy thousand page book, believe it or not, I kept the whole thing in my head. I didn't need notes. Like I, I was just in the zone and I wrote a thousand pages straight through without having to, to help myself out along the way. Mm-hmm. This book, I had to pull out every trick in the book to, to make this thing work because I had to, again, I had all these different points of view. I had two different times, time zones happening here. I had 1986 and I had the present and I had decided that I was going to try to write them in slightly different voices so that they felt different when you as a reader or you know you would know you were in a 1986 chapter just by the way it read mm-hmm. and and so you know on a craft level this was incredibly complicated and and, and then you weave a murder mystery through that like <laughs> you know so then you, have, you know you have all that going on then you weave a murder mystery through it and you're deciding all right do i drop this clue in 1986 or do i drop it in the present and if so how do they learn about it and and it just gets really really it became very overwhelming. Um, and so I, when I finished it the first time I felt sad, but also I felt this great sense of achievement because I was like, Oh my God, I actually did it. Like it, yeah. it hangs together. I did it. Um, and, and so that, that was good. That was a good feeling. Well, I'm glad you have a sense of satisfaction. I certainly <laughs> had a sense of satisfaction reading all the way to the end. I, and this is again, why I appreciate your book so much, the logic of them. It is an earned ending. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You stuck the landing there. I'm just going to say. You know, I feel like endings endings are so important because that's what people take away from the book. Yeah. You know? It it could be a great book, but if you you drop the ball in the last 20 pages, people are going to be like, eh. I mean, we've heard this before. We've seen it with movies and TV shows. You know, the, the finales to TV shows are just fraught. You know? You screw up the finale and people are like, you know, they don't want to watch it. They don't want to remember it even. Uh, also, I have zero patience for retconning. Yeah. Uh, if you have to retcon something more than one time, right. you didn't set it up right. You, you Just start again. Start again. Yeah. Do a new book. Yeah. 
you said that you write for yourself. Yeah. I'm very selfish. (laughs) Don't make the comment where it can be heard by other people. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, listeners, I made that sound in your ear hole. I apologize. Um, But you do make, in the before times, and I'm sure in the future times as well, you do make a lot of school visits. I know this because I used to type my fingers. You used to set them up for me. (laughs) Yeah, generating all those confirmations. Um, But you are very popular at school visits, and you have a vigorous fandom of teens what have you learned over the years from your readers and their reactions to your work? And I mean, both in terms of, you know, how you approach your writing, I guess it really hasn't done that much to you, but, you know, thinking about boundaries, etc. Again, going back to adultification. I, I always had respect for teenagers because I very keenly remember being a teenager. I, I used to joke that, you know, I, I still feel like I'm 15 years old. Um, and that when I look in the mirror, it's a shock. <laughs> um, since I have had children, that has changed quite. I, I feel like I finally grew up because I had kids, and suddenly it's like, oh, I have to be the responsible one now. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm the dad. I have to take care of them. I, I can't be the kid anymore. Um, so, but it's okay. I had a good run. My teen years lasted, in, you know, until about forty. So that that's not bad. I'm I'm happy with that. Um, and you know, now I'm probably I don't know thirty, maybe you know, in my head. Um, but so I always I always had a respect for that. I feel like I feel like the the uh, the acceptable answer to that question, the cliche answer to that question is, oh, like I learned so much from them, and they're so smart, and they're smarter than we think, and they're you know wiser than we think. Blah blah blah. <laughs> what what I get away from honestly from meeting teens is I'm like that's right, they are kids, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's only in this culture, this messed up culture we have where the idea of being a kid is, is considered an insult. Um, Bruce Coville once gave a great speech where he talked about how in America we hate children. And he, he laid it out and he proved it, and, and it was amazing. And, and you know, I, I don't hate children. And I think that, you know, I am constantly reminded that as adult-presenting as they may be, they are, they are, they're still clay. Um, and there's still so much that can be, that can be, uh, formed in them for good and for ill. Mm-hmm. And, and that is what I, I think about a lot. Um, you know, they are so worldly, but they are still so naive. And I, I try to remember that, you know, I, I met a man once I, I was friendly with the guy and he had been, um, molested as a kid in circumstances very similar to what I wrote about in Boy Toy. So that was a little weird for me. Um, but we were talking once and he showed me a picture from when he was 16 years old. And he said, this is probably like a year after it started. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the picture of him and he goes, I thought I was so grown up, but look at me. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, yeah, you're a kid, you're 16. And you think you're an adult, you think you're ready, you think you can handle it, but you're a kid. And it's only... 20 years later, 30 years later, that you look at that picture and you go, oh my God, I was a baby. And this thing happened to me. And so I think about that. And I I think that, I think particularly in YA, we are very uh, vulnerable to treating our readers like they are grown up. And they're not. 
they're they're still they're still in that in that that kid stage and we have to respect that you know um and and again not in a derogatory way like you know i wrote a, a blog post years ago there when there was some uh there were some issues with with some abuse that had gone on with with some some big uh ya adjacent people mm. and i wrote a blog post about why you know i won't hug kids at my events it's like that's just not cool. Like I'm a grown man. Like I should not be hugging children who are not related to me. And a, a girl who was a teenager called me out on it. And she's like, she's like, why are you treating me? Like, you know, like I can't handle being hugged by somebody. And she was very upset with me. And I said, yeah, you know, sorry, but I'm the adult. I'm the one who has, I'm responsible. In, in a very, very smart friend of mine once said to me, in any relationship between an adult and a child, the adult is 100% responsible for every aspect of that relationship. And so, you know, I drew that line for myself. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'll fist bump you, I'll shake your hand, I'll sign your book, I'll stay and talk to you, you know, till the cows come home. But I'm not, I'm not going to give you a hug because it's just not right. I love that answer. <laughs> I, no, no, I really do because I, 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 I think there's a lot of, um, the teen years, it's a, it's a big, huge time of confusion uh, in so many different ways. And as we've been talking through the course of our conversation here, and I sort of feel like this hour has been just a slice of the conversation you and I have been having. Since, <laughs> since we met on the uh, school library journal panel in 2006. <laughs> I know. Oh, I could. Oh, that man with the photographs. He was violating my boundaries that day. I really <laughs> Microphone. No, I don't like my picture being taken. And no, I am going to flip you off every single time you try to do it, buddy. Um, but again, that, but that is about that power dynamic and about that sense of ownership, uh, one to another, and sort of being respectful of boundaries. And the respect that you show to your fans is respected in the logic of the books. Yes, you're writing for yourself, but you're not writing dumb stuff. You're writing very well, I mean, high level intelligent I, stuff. If, if I didn't want other people to read it, I wouldn't publish any of it. You know, I would just write it and I would say, okay, that worked. And I'd, I'd save the file on the hard drive and I'd move on to the next thing. I mean, I, you know, I know people are going to read it. Um, and, and that to me is, is what, you know, the editing is about is making it, making it so that somebody else can read it and hopefully have the same experience I had while writing it. That that's what the editing is for. Mm -hmm. Cause I already know it works for me. And then it's, it's here, you look at this and tell me how I make it work for somebody else. Yeah. Um, and, begins, and that's how we get there. But it begins with a sense of respect. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Well, Barry, Liga, thank you very much for spending some time with me in the digital universe today. I, I hope one day that we'll see each other in person again without me having to hitch a ride in a car going to somewhere... <laughs> In Jersey. I mean, this really was a lot easier when you lived about 10 blocks away from me. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And then, you know, we had to move to the swamps of Jersey. Um, it's not a, it's but, not like you're living in Elizabeth. Come on. That's not, you're living in a nice, yeah. I saw your, I've been to your house. It's nice. Yeah. I've been to the Elks uh, Club near your house. It's, it's nice yes, too. The, yes, the Elks <laughs> Club. Um, no, no, this is great. Thank you for having me. This is terrific. I, I, really enjoyed this conversation um go figure it's about me so yeah um. 
that's actually really about me, Barry, because I only do what I like to do and what I want to do. So that's, that's true. Really, that's really, true. it's not about you at all. It's about me. About me. It's always <laughs> been about me because I'm the only one. Uh, gentle listeners throughout the virtual world, Time Will Tell by Barry Lyka should be on your bedside table now. And as a special treat, we're going to leave you with an audio sample of the book from our pals at Hachette Audio. Oh, and, great. They did such a good job. They did a really great job with it. Yeah. yeah. So we hope you enjoy the sample. We'll see you next time. Bearing shovels and a pickaxe, they made their way up the hill that morning. Liam started whining about the climb halfway up, pleading exhaustion already to the annoyance of the others. Alea rolled her eyes. Marcy did more than roll her eyes. She turned to Liam and held out her shovel, stopping him in his tracks. Are you in or are you out? I only had a grande this morning, Liam said with a wretched pout. Grow up, Marcy told him, tossing her hair back. Stop being a pussy. Microaggression, Liam cried. Hashtag me too. The last of their foursome, Georgia, snorted. She had the pickaxe, which somehow imbued her with additional gravitas. Everyone turned to look at her. Girls are allowed to say pussy, she informed Liam. We're reclaiming it from the patriarchy. Sucks to be you, Marcy added with a healthy dose of snark. Wait, wait! Liam made an almost mechanical sound deep in his chest. I think I know what the problem is. He gagged up a wad of something thick and yellowish, then spat it into the grass at his feet. Alea was the only one to react. Gross, she exclaimed. Liam chuckled under his breath. Tall and dirty blonde and crinkly grinned, he was pretty much every aftershave and men's deodorant commercial come to life. He had a face made for YouTube and a body made for making girls swoon. Straight girls, at least. Alea had done her fair share of swooning, and even knowing that he was playing her for the reaction to his phlegmy male raunch, she was still frozen by those blue eyes and that saucy quirk of his lips. You're disgusting, she said just a moment too late. Liam laughed. He took a bizarre pleasure in tricking her, then pulling back the curtain. Always had. It's up there. Georgia pointed to a spot just atop the hill. The lady hath spoken. Liam shouldered his shovel and, grande or not, dashed up the hill at a pace that made Alea feel like a slug. First one up is ruler of the world. Georgia reacted instantly, her long legs carrying her up the hill only a foot or two behind Liam. No fair, she screamed, racing. Just then, Liam crested the hill. He spun around and lofted his shovel like a medieval knight's sword, striking a legs akimbo pose. I have conquered the mountain, 
he bellowed. Not a mountain, Georgia yelled back, just a few feet from him. Marcy sighed and shook her head, adjusting her glasses. She raised an eyebrow at Alea. Are we going to race like those idiots? Please, no. Marcy laughed. I'm glad. Together, they made a steady but unhurried trek up the hill. The incline rolled over into a broad, wide expanse of grass and trees. It would have been a mesa if it had been higher and drier. And in the southwest, from here, they could see the dinky sprawl of town to the north. The Wansler factory, still chugging along, barely, to the west, and the high school to the south, down the slope. Alea allowed herself a moment to enjoy the view, then hustled over to where the others had gathered. I think it's this tree, Liam said, now all serious. It is, right? 